Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm your host, theater critic Lily Janik. How do you get through being stuck in bed for more than three decades? Playwright Daniel Redman has survived catastrophic injury and years and years of isolation in his Berkeley home. That's what I wanted to ask him about back in September when I invited him to the Chronicle in advance of a staged reading he was holding at the Berkeley Public Library in October. But through our interview, I found that was kind of a silly question. Daniel and I talked today about being an up-and-coming playwright in Berkeley in the 80s and the accident that changed his life, but we also talk about what writing meant to him when he could do few other things and about what he thinks now when people tell him he's inspirational. By the way, you'll hear him say in the interview that it was eight months between the initial injury and when it suddenly got worse, but we found in fact-checking the story that it was more like four years. Here's the show. All right, welcome to the studio, Mr. Daniel Redman. Hi. Thanks for joining us here today. Why don't we hear a little bit about what your life in theater was like 40 years ago? Well, I was, uh, I guess you could say, an up-and-coming playwright. I would write plays and try to get theaters to do them. It was quite hard, actually. Uh, <laughs> it still is. <laughs> uh, maybe even harder. You know, I had I had a lot, a lot of rejections. Um but eventually, there were some small theaters in Berkeley. So, uh, so I was able to get my play done and direct it. And I had some pretty good success with a couple of plays. Which I, company is this that you're thinking of? It was of? called Bear Stage. The Bear Stage mm -hmm. it was in a church uh, near the university in Berkeley. And... Uh, so because of that, I got good reviews in the Chronicle and other papers. Then I had people from theaters calling me up and saying, yeah, you know, you have another play. And it was pretty, it was pretty flattering. Given That's the fact exciting. That I, yeah, it was exciting. And, and, and since I had been, re the plays that I, that I did do and directed had been rejected by maybe 40 theaters, each of them. And uh, so that was pretty exciting. And, and then I got hurt. So just at a time that maybe something good could have happened further, I got hurt. Now, can you tell us the story of that day? Um, well, I, I did various jobs to support my habit of writing. And that deadly uh, habit of writing yeah, plays? Yeah. And so I, at the time I was working... Uh, I was doing carpentry. I was um, remodeling uh, a room, and I was working, uh, putting up the ceiling. And uh, I made some mistakes, which I shouldn't have made because I wasn't a great carpenter. Anyway, the ceiling fell on me, and uh, like while you were on a ladder. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. While I was on a ladder. But I, 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 the mistake I made was normally you use like a T, which holds up the part of the ceiling as you're working on it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't use a T. So I was using one hand to hold it up. And it gave, in other words, I couldn't hold it. And so it 
gave way, collapsed, so partly fell, the part of it fell on my head and my neck and shoulder, and um, so it was a serious injury. Now, what year was this? 1978, I think, something like that. And, and where were you working on the ceiling? In Berkeley. In Berkeley. Yeah. It was someone's house? Yeah, it was someone's house, right, yeah. And so were you conscious? Yeah, I was conscious, and um, it's not as horrible as it sounds. I, I just was not, I was in a lot of pain, but I just wasn't able to um, move my right arm and shoulder and uh, uh, my neck. And then I started going to doctors over a period of time, and it got worse. And then so, I don't know, it was about, after about eight months, I woke up one day, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't, I couldn't even sit up. So that was pretty scary. Eventually, they diagnosed it as, which is common, uh, ruptured discs. I had, or herniated disc, they call it, in the neck, two of them. There was also some uh, bony, bony particles. What happened from there? Well, I basically, for the next 37 years, I was bedridden. I mean, I went to a lot of different doctors. I went to a lot, a lot of different alternative things. Uh, there was no, no, um, no one seems to be able to find out what was really wrong for those for the next 37 years i was i was bedridden and uh i went swimming every day I went to this heated pool and i went to doctors that was the only um time i was out of the house how did you realize or come to accept that being bedridden was your new lot in life? Or did you? Maybe you didn't. <laughs> well, I don't know the word except. I could only sit up for about 20 minutes at a time. You just try to deal with that, and you don't really think about, you hope that it's going to get better. You, you, do, you try to do things. Like I said, I went to different doctors. I even went to different surgeons. Uh, uh, I did all kinds of stuff, alternative stuff. So I didn't give up in that sense. I always felt maybe I'll get better. But of course, as the years progressed, uh, I thought it was less and less likely that it would happen. But I don't know if you ever accepted it. I don't think I ever accepted it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it wasn't as if, even though I was bedridden, it's not as if I wasn't, I still was writing, I dictated. I couldn't type or anything, but I, I would dictate. I mean, retrospectively, looking back, I guess I wrote a lot of stuff. You know, I wrote, I did write plays, and I wrote, I wrote a book about pain. What's the book called? Uh, See you tomorrow. <laughs> Why is that funny? Who Who are you saying "see ya tomorrow" to? Uh pain. <laughs> 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 Can you give me a sense of what a typical day would be like and what would go through your mind over the course of that day? Well, you wake up in the morning and you are grateful if there's less pain 
So that's the first thing. You're always hoping that there's less pain than there was the previous day. Even though you've done it day after day after day, you're only fighting, you know, this idea of not being able to sit up very long. So you're always fighting. You try to do things that you need to do sitting up. So you're always fighting the clock in a way, you know. Uh, so that's, I remember that. Whatever you have to do, whether it's eat or wash, or has to be done all in 20 minutes. And that means you can't eat and wash and do, you know, you have to spread things out. There would be a certain amount of maybe two hours a day where I would dictate the rest of the day. Well, I said I go, I go swimming every day. I didn't see that many people. Yeah, I didn't see that many people there. I couldn't go anywhere. Some people would come over. A lot of people had a hard time. I lost a lot of friends. Actually, that's one common thing about people who have chronic injuries of any kind. Really? It's hard. It's, you know, uh, people can be there in crises for you, but when it's prolonged over so long, it's harder and harder. And... Uh, Actually, the men I knew had a harder time of relating because they're used to playing basketball or doing stuff, but sitting around, like I had a woman friend that would read me plays, you know, every week. Yeah, women are better. <laughs> they are, just are, you know, they, and they have been uh, throughout my uh, so-called ordeal. ordeal. But I did lose a lot of friends. And it, it's very isolating. It's very isolating. Uh, it's, another, it's another country. Pain is another country. And, uh, That's a good phrase. Well, I'm sure it's not totally original. But, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, is, it is another country in the sense that you, the people who are not in pain really can't understand it. And you're outside. And, uh, and you're fighting. It's not just the pain. I mean, people, when people think of being in pain, like it hurts. And that's true, but you can't do stuff. So when you can't do stuff, that has a terrible psychological effect. I mean, you can do some things, you know, but you're not feeling like you're contributing to the world. You know, you hear these expressions of um, if you have a lot of pain, you're soulful or something. You've heard that, you know, people who suffer, they're, they're soulful. Well, especially artists, they have to suffer. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's really, uh, that's really a, a, like a half-truth. I mean, I don't think suffering makes you anything. I think it's what you are before you, you start to suffer that determines. Did you notice that your attitude toward your situation evolved over time, or do you feel like you were pretty consistent in how you thought about it? I mean, I guess on some level you keep hoping that it will change. There's always new stuff coming out. You hear about new stuff all the time. People are always telling you, did you go to the acupuncture? Did you go to this? You know, so I, you know, I tried. I tried a lot of different, whenever I could. Uh, but after a while, I figured I wasn't going. They weren't going to help me. And uh, at the same time, like I said, you still believe that maybe something will happen, you know. And then it did, because it happened totally accidentally. Uh, someone gave me, a doctor said, uh, well, you, 
you're in pain, so you have to take an antidepressant. Now, there are antidepressants that are used for pain, and they, I, had, I had been given those, and I had tried, and they had never helped my pain. But this guy wasn't giving it to me for pain. He said, if you're in pain, you must be depressed. I wasn't depressed except for the fact that I didn't like the pain. And I didn't want to even take it because I'd taken, but he insisted, and so I did. And after the first day, I saw, I saw myself getting a little better. It was, I mean, unbelievable. Like physically better. Yeah, yeah. The only thing was that, oh, it's, it's called Paxil, which is a common antidepressant, and it's not particularly used for pain. But uh, the only thing was that even though there was improvement, like I was able to sit up longer, I couldn't believe it, really. So for the next four years, three, next three years, I was able to, I could sit up for like a normal person. As long as he wanted. Yeah, I could sit up for as long as I wanted. I couldn't do certain things. There's still things, like you saw me today, I can't, I can't walk on cement. It has something to do with the spine. When there's no give, it compresses the spine. Hmm. So I can't do that, and that's why I have to have a wheelchair uh, when I'm, you know, on concrete. So you could sit up and walk. Yeah, I can walk on uh, dirt 10 miles. I can hike. I can walk on wood. And I can walk on water. <laughs> I go to the pool every day. Yeah. So, yeah, but the problem was I had a stroke after three years. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a serious stroke in the sense, I guess all strokes are serious, but it wasn't a totally debilitating one, and the Paxil didn't work. So I was back in the old, in the old grind. So when was that three- or four-year period when you could sit up and walk? It was about 13 years ago, some 14 years ago. What did writing mean to you or give to you this whole time when you were, you know, doing your dictation a couple hours oh, a day? writing? Well... Well, it's like the only thing that made me feel worthwhile. That's all, that's all you know, you're lying there. You know, you're not doing anything productive. To be able to, to write is really uh, actually feeling a little bit worthwhile. It's very essential. I was so grateful. I was so grateful that I had that. Some people don't have, or the thing that they love to do requires, you know, being out, out, out of bed. Was it a lot harder to do when you were giving dictation than when you were writing yourself? Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. Because writing for me always used to come, come in my, you know, my hands and fingers. How did you notice your writing changed? I'm not sure I noticed that it did change. Mm -hmm. um, just except for that, you know, when you dictate, you're dictating to a person. I was dictating to a person, you know, you become self-conscious. You, you know, you certain things you can't write because you feel they're either it's too personal or or you feel they're judging you. Um, I'm constantly having to deal with that with that problem. 
That I think I got used to more. You know, that took me a long time. Although, tell you the truth, now when I look back, a lot of stuff I wrote, I can see that it's like about 60% of what I can do. You mentioned over the phone that you think it was the medication. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it has to do with you're taking all this medication and you're, uh, you, your head is not as clear. But I wasn't, I wasn't aware of how unclear it was, I guess, because I was, I was saying, okay, it's all, you know, as long as I'm not like a zombie. Tell us about the medical miracle that got you sitting up again. That is it, actually. It's just that after it stopped, after the stroke, I tried it again. It didn't work. So then I was back in the old grind. And But every year or two, I try again. Oh. And it didn't work. I tried it five different times over a period of, I don't know, seven or eight years. And then it finally did work. That's the medical miracle. Wow, and they say insanity is trying the same thing over and over again <laughs> well, and expecting different results. But if there's nothing else, if there's nothing else that's working, you might as well try something that did work once. And and, and you know what? It it cannot work. I mean, it's worked now for uh, I guess it's almost four years now. You know, I could wake up tomorrow and it probably and it, it could be not working. So your first venture back into theater again. It looks like that was in 2017 when you did three readings? Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? For some reason, I, I'm not sure why, I, I was writing ten minute, these 10-minute plays. And I, 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 I think it's because it's easier in a way. It's harder in some sense, but it's easier that you can feel, you can really focus in on things and you could get a sense of accomplishment you know, after a few months rather than two years to write a full-length play. And and there was a... And I was just kind of getting back into the world. I would go to... You know, I live downtown Berkeley, kind of in the middle of... You know, everything's there that I like, which is... There's, there's bookstores, and there's the library, and there's the Y, and there's the theaters. Uh, and so... I live in a like an eight bo- uh, an eight block world, <laughs> and I was riding in the wheelchair because I can't walk on cement, and I started writing these plays about people in the street and um, stuff I saw and experienced, and I, I you know I had about eight of them, and so I thought I'd put them together. That was in my mind. That was my fantasy to do. And then I used to go to this um, cafe, which is really a nice cafe in Berkeley, called uh, the Musical Offering. And it's a very nice place, and also it's spacious, easy to park my wheelchair. And so I used to go there every day in the afternoon, and I'd read. So one of the plays, one of these 10-minute plays I wrote, it was based on being in that, in that place. And I don't know how it happened, but Months later, I thought, oh, well, maybe I could ask them if I could do the play that was written about, you know. And uh, one, I guess part of the reason was the cook there I became friendly with, and he 
he had mentioned that, why don't you do something, you know, here? At any rate, I, I pitched it to him, as they say, and um, they said, okay. How was it? I had 70 people there. I got 70 people there. Uh, half of them I knew, and the other half I'm not sure, which is great. I mean, 70 people in a little place. What was it uh, like seeing your words spoken by actors again? It, oh, it was great. It was really great. And, uh, you know, it, I felt I really didn't even have to do it in the theater once I did that because I had a really heterogeneous audience. I had older people, younger people, uh, different races. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool, you know? And it made me feel that I'd like to do it again. And then you, know? you did at the Marsh in Berkeley, right? Yeah, that was a little, yeah. But it was, again, it was only a one-time a one thing, yeah. And then in the last year, I wrote these two plays. So they're my two most recent plays. And... And these are Deed of Life and It Could Be Me? Deed of Life and It Could Be Me, yeah. Yeah, very different uh, plays. One last question, maybe, Daniel. Um, before we started recording here, you were saying that you don't see yourself as an inspiration and you wouldn't want others to see you that way, necessarily. I was wondering if you could talk a little about that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, uh, well... As a news story or as a human interest story, I guess that's why I'm even being interviewed, right? Because uh, you found out about my story and you thought... Well, it doesn't uh, have to be inspirational, but it, it well, can why, still be well, interesting. You, it can why? still be interesting even if it's not inspirational. Okay, so your first impulse was this is interesting? Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't about inspiration? Why was it interesting? It's an unusual experience. Okay, because it's unusual. Okay. But in general, in general, that's why people interview people. That's why. And I remember when I was trying to get the book I wrote about pain, um, which is really, it's, called, it's a collage. It's really, anyway, uh, when I was trying to get it published, I got a lot of good comments about it, but rejection because it didn't have a happy ending. In other words, it didn't lead to the inspirational ending that they thought would be, would sell, I guess. And I'm not against inspirational books. I think there's a real place for them. It's important because it gives you hope, you know, and it's uh, heroes, have heroes. Uh, but my book and, and the book that, that I wanted to read when I was in the, um, and, and during that period I was bedroom, was really not an inspirational book. I, would, I wanted someone that would understand, that was going through what I was going through, that made me feel that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't a freak, you know, that there... And there are, there are, there are millions of people that have that, those kind of experiences, and the inspirational books don't do anything for them. What, what, what do you do? If you can't do it, what do you do? But if you feel somebody um, understands, 
actually, I wanted to say something about it. That's one of the things, uh, dealing with someone in pain, I, I think the feeling that someone else understands, or at least is trying to understand what you're going through, to me is probably the greatest gift you can give. And you know, people who deal with people who are hurt, you know, whether they're their relatives or their friends, they feel, I want to do something. I want to do something. I'm not doing enough. What can I do? And really, that's a pretty, really important thing you can do if you really, if there's a sense that you're trying to be there, uh, listen. And if I think back, to me, that was the greatest gift. Yeah, I don't think of myself as inspirational. When, you, when you're going through something, you're thinking, or I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I was thinking how to deal with the moment-by-moment moment thing. How can I sit up for 20 minutes and do this, this, and this? Or uh, how can I move slightly so the pain will be a little less? These are all the things you're thinking about. And so when someone says to me, that's inspirational, I, I don't relate to it in that way. And uh, uh, I mean, it's easy when you, look, when you look out at someone else's life and you think, oh, I couldn't do that, then it's inspirational. But you don't know. If you were in that situation, you might be doing the very same thing and you wouldn't consider it inspirational. It's like soldiers in the war. They say, boy, how did you do that brave thing? You ran into six guns were firing at you. And they'll say, no, no, no. I was actually kind of scared and I was, uh, you know, that's what I do. You know, that's what you do. I had, you know, they're, they're not, it's not anything to do with inspiration. So, and then it, when we're talking about plays, a re play reading, I mean, do you go to a play that someone wrote because their life has had some suffering in it? What is the connection? I mean, you might go to my play and not like it, or you might like it, but it's not going to have anything to do with the fact that I went through this experience. And... Uh, so what is the connection, right? And it might even be disappointing. You think, boy, this guy's so inspirational. Boy, wish he could write. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, really. And you, you know, maybe you'd want it to be good because you figure the guy deserves something. He's been through that terrible times. But I, so it makes me uncomfortable. It's a form of pity in a way. Maybe, yeah. But it, it's a form of not getting close to the reality of the person's experience. And, and it's, look, we, we don't really understand anyone's experience. I'm not, not someone who's in pain, but none of us know anything about any, anyone else. How can you? It's very, I mean, you can try, and I give credit. Trying is what I'm saying. That's pretty cool, you know, to make an effort. But to really know, I mean, do you know anybody? Do you really know anybody? I don't even think I know myself. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there we go. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming into the Chronicle today. You're welcome. <laughs>
This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Stephen Boyle. This show is produced by me. For more theater coverage, you can follow me on Twitter at Lily Janik. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. Thank you.